Welcome to the Experience ANU podcast on iTunes. The ANU campus is always alive with plenty to see, hear and do. If you're interested in finding out more about events at ANU, then visit us at anu.edu.au forward slash events or follow us on Twitter at ANU underscore events. We update the ANU podcast regularly, so make sure you subscribe to never miss a talk. Okay, well, welcome. Um, my name is Martin Kirk. I'm an associate professor here at the Australian National University. I work in the National Centre for Epidemiology and Population Health at the Research School of Population Health. Um, I really want to welcome everyone tonight and just if people could turn off their mobile phones so there's no disturbances during the lecture tonight. Um, firstly, I'd like to acknowledge that this meeting is being held on the traditional lands of the, of the Ngunnawal people and I pay my respects to both elders past and present. Um, tonight's public lecture is being conducted on the topic of asbestos and is it dangerous to your health? Um, the ANU was recently um, contracted to conduct some research into living in Mr Fluffy homes. This, this lecture is not actually part of that, but it, it involves Professor Bruce Armstrong, Emeritus Professor Bruce Armstrong, who is on the study research team. So the study team has actually been conducting work into a number of different avenues, so including analysing data on the mesothelioma, cases reported to the, Australian, the um, ACT Cancer Registry and we'll be reporting that shortly. That hasn't actually um, been passed on to ACT government yet and there are a number of other parts to that as well. And you can look at some of the work on our website on the ANU. Um, tonight, Professor Bruce Armstrong will be talking on is it dangerous to live in a Mr Fluffy home? And it's obviously a topic that is really gripped Canberra over the last couple of years, but it's actually been going on much longer than that, and um, Bruce has had involvement for some time over that. So Bruce is an emeritus professor in the School of Public Health at the University of Sydney. He's, he has 40 years experience researching the causes and prevention of cancer and the performance of can cancer services. Among other things, he's been deputy director of the International Agency for Research on Cancer in Lyon, Director of Research and Registers at the Cancer Council New South Wales, Head of the University of Sydney School of Public Health and Director of Research at the former Sydney Cancer Centre. He's currently the Chair of the New South Wales Bureau of Health Information and Senior Advisor at the Sachs Institute. Um, Professor Armstrong was honoured for his work in cancer epidemiology by award of a membership of the Order of Australia, Fellowship of the Australian Academy of Science and the 2006 inaugural New South Wales Premier's Award of Cancer Researcher of the Year. Um, I trained as an epidemiologist here at the ANU 20 years ago and I remember Bruce lecturing me then and he was fantastic then and fantastic now and he has a real knack of explaining um, the problems of science um, to all types of people of all types of backgrounds. So hopefully tonight he'll be able to elucidate a bit more about is it dangerous to live in a Mr Fluffy home. So thank you, Bruce. Thank you, Martin, for setting the expectations high. And let me just add a, a little bit to what Martin said in respect of the independence of this lecture. It has been prepared completely independently of the ANU team, except for one person, Dr Mark Clements, who is also a member of the ANU team, currently a senior lecturer at the... Uh, uh, Karolinska Institute in Stockholm in Sweden who has done all the statistics for me. Now you might say well that's clearly a conflict of interest, it's not. Mark Clements was a PhD student of mine uh, now about 15 years ago or so and I work with him on all kinds of things and I asked him to do this because I, know, I knew he'd do it well. Um, and that's it. Okay, that's enough for issues of conflict of interest. Let's move on to the lecture. We'll start with a little bit about mesothelioma. There's a little bit of introductory stuff. I hope you don't find it boring. I hope some of you will find it informative. 
It remains, mesothelioma remains an almost uniformly fatal cancer. And it's very obvious, therefore, why people don't want to get mesothelioma. Interestingly, in the absence of known exposure to asbestos and some other asbestiform minerals, an asbestiform mineral is something that isn't chemically asbestos, it's not in that family of chemicals, but it has a mineral a structure which is fibrous like asbestos and other asbestiform uh, chemicals can in fact uh, cause mesothelioma. In the absence of exposure to them, it is very rare. And I've estimated it's probably about 0.3 per 100,000 people per year. And the way I've done that is shown on this next slide where you can see trends in incidence of mesothelioma in Denmark from 1943 to 2013. Why did I choose Denmark? Because it's got a cancer registry that goes back into the 1940s and that was the time when asbestos was only starting to become commonly used in industry. And what you can see instantly in that first 11 years is essentially a flat line. You know, it's bobbing around, obviously, that's due to the relatively small numbers. And so it looks as if mesothelioma was constant for about 11 years and then it started to go up sharply in men because of their occupation involving asbestos and, and later in women and certainly much less sharply. So you can, pro you can make a good argument to say that that first 11 years is probably what mesothelioma was before people started to become exposed to asbestos. Now that pic picture shows you very graphically how important asbestos exposure is to the rate of mesothelioma as it is now. And it goes up much sharper and much further than that in Australia. But we don't have data going back to 1943, unfortunately. <clears throat> in 2011, the Australian rates were 2.8 per 100,000 per year in men and 0 0.5 per 100,000 per year in women. Interestingly, so that's about nine times those rates in the absence of asbestos exposure in men and interesting, only about twice as much in women, and that illustrates, of course, how much less women have been exposed to asbestos compared with men. Asbestos and these other asbestiform minerals are also the only known causes of mesothelioma. And because it is naturally rare and exclusive to this family of exposures, it's often used as a marker of asbestos exposure and an indicator of risk of other asbestos-related diseases. So that's why I'll be focusing on mesothelioma a lot, because it is, in a sense, uniquely related to asbestos in being rare otherwise and not caused by anything else except either asbestos or the asbestiform minerals. And we don't have a problem with those other minerals in Australia. Australia, the problem is asbestos. Australia has some of the highest incidence rates of mesothelioma in the world. You can see there the interesting two up right at the top. These are based on cancer registries around the world, a collection of data that the International Agency for Research on Cancer collects together every five years. And it's only the cancer registries that are, that are working as quality operations and, and producing reliable data that go there. The two at the top are Bremen in Germany and Genoa in Italy. These are two port cities. What does that tell you? There's a lot of asbestos historically has been used in shipping, particularly in insulation of, uh, in, 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 in ships. And, and so that, that's why they're there. So that's reflecting the level of asbestos exposure in that community. The next one, we have WA, Western Australia. And that's because of the chrysidolite mine at Wittenoom in Western Australia, which has certainly caused many asbestos-related diseases in the men that worked there and has had a significant contribution to, to mesothelioma and other asbestos-related disease around the world. Most of it, was in fact exported, not that much of it was used here in Australia. And if you look down there very quickly, you'll see uh, Queensland appearing and you'll see the ACT somewhere there, uh, a bit of 
around the middle and Victoria as well. So Australia's up there in the big league when it comes to mesothelioma. Asbestos does cause some other cancers, the most important one by far being lung cancer. The reason it's important, even though lung cancer is predominantly caused by cigarette smoking, is that asbestos exposure multiplies the effect of cigarette smoking. If you've got a 10 times increased risk because of your cigarette smoking and you're also exposed to asbestos, then you've got about a 20 times risk compared with someone who neither smokes nor is exposed to asbestos. So it's quite important there. The other two, laryngeal cancer, ovarian cancer, again, a relative risk of around two, but they are much less common in the community than lung cancer, and so they don't contribute that much to asbestos-related cancer. So the big two are mesothelioma and lung cancer. Australia has been a very heavy user of asbestos, even if it didn't use a lot of its chrysidolite from Whittenham. And there you can see the way it developed uh, from uh, the, the early 1900s, very little, uh, starting to go up in the 1920s and reaching a peak in the decade of 1970 to 1979. And that's uh, uh, 700,000 tonnes uh, of asbestos used over that decade. Australia was the fourth heaviest consumer of asbestos cement products. So asbestos sheeting, uh, sewage pipes, water pipes, things like that. The uh, corrugated asbestos sheeting people have used in their fences and so on. These are all asbestos cement products. It was the heaviest per capita user of asbestos products, uh, cement products in the world. So we, we really did well in adoption of asbestos cement as a building material and a material useful for other purposes. And I mean, it was great stuff. And asbestos was the perfect mineral to use there, uh, but it had a downside. 90% of all asbestos consumed in Australia went into asbestos cement products. And much of Australia's output of these products remains in use today. So it's still there. And this has raised a concern about a possible third wave of asbestos-related disease. Now this is obviously some specialist jargon, so let's unpack it a little bit. So the first wave was in people who worked in mining and milling of the ore and manufacture of asbestos products. So take the operation in Whittenham. Uh, that particular operation did two things. Firstly, it dug out the asbestos ore. Then it went through a milling process to separate the asbestos fibres from the other rocks with which they were mixed. And then they bagged the asbestos up and transported it away. And I've seen photographs of the bagging room and you, you can't see because of the asbestos fibres in the air. This stuff's just dropping out of the chute into the bag. A guy's holding it. Uh, you can imagine the exposure that those men got. The second wave was in people who used asbestos products. So used in the sense of made things from them, built houses and, and, and so on. Produced insulation. And in fact, uh, you know, worked in making brake linings, another case in point. The third wave is postulated, that is, we don't know for sure yet that it's going to happen, in people who repair, renovate or demolish asbestos-containing buildings and in residents, tenants and users of those buildings. And that, of course, is where many of you this evening have a very great interest. And it's plausible in Australia that a third wave will occur given the extent of asbestos use in building materials. Has it occurred? Is it occurring? The answer is so far no evidence. What you see here is the trend in men. This goes back to 1982 where cancer registration started in Australia 
and you can see it going up and actually reaching, reaching a peak there in the early 2000s and probably staying fairly flat. And you can see roughly similar pattern in, in women, only much, much less. So there we've got about a five-fold increase uh, from the, the, the low rate uh, right at the beginning to where it peaked in the early 2000s and now it's flat, maybe coming down, but it's much too early to tell for sure. I've just put these out in age groups because there's another interesting thing there and what you can see is that the younger age groups have seen that drop early and in fact it's quite pronounced. You can see that that blue line while it's running along the bottom has got back down to where it was at the beginning and that's women 40 to 49 years and then the red line reached a peak somewhere in the mid-1990s and it is now down quite a lot less in 2011. Uh, somewhat similar, only a bit shifted this way in the green line for women 60 to 69 years. And then you can see in the older women it's got to a peak and it's ra remained rather flat. Now that's typical of what we see when a particular exposure has affected mainly a particular generation. And so each generation is seeing the effect later. Um, because it's be each earlier the earlier generations see the effect it, it dropping down later because as they get older they carry the hazard with, with them, whereas the younger generation is now getting people who were never exposed in the first place. And that's what's happening. But so far in that, again, no suggestion in, in men uh, that there's a third wave. There's just a little bit there that might worry you there with the green line and the blue line where they're tending to jump up a little bit recently, but again, much too early to tell. So my personal view is we currently don't have evidence of a third wave in Australia. But that's a concern that we, we have to continue to consider. Now, let's turn to the topic of greater interest to you, which is household exposure to asbestos. Uh, there are two main classes of household exposure, workplace asbestos dust, brought home on the clothing of people exposed to asbestos at work, and the evidence is very strong there that that increases risk. Evidence from Whitnerm, evidence from lots of different places where members of people's families um, who expo were exposed to that dust have themselves developed asbestos-related diseases. And then exposure resulting from asbestos-containing materials in houses or, or other residences. And there, there's the active exposure during installation, removal or repair of asbestos-containing materials, and then there's passive exposure due to presence, degradation or damage of the asbestos-containing materials. And it's in that last category that I imagine that most people who have lived in Mr Fluffy homes are passive exposure, although I certainly understand that there are people who have active exposure by renovation, or by not realising the hazard and doing things in the ceiling space and so on. Um, the, those effects, and I'll tell you now, are, rather, are hard to quantify, and so I've not taken them into account in what I'm going to say next, but it's important to remember that they are there and they will affect some people. <clears throat> so what are the levels uh, that we observe? Uh, Measurement of exposure to asbestos is usually done in terms of measurement of the levels of asbestos in air, in the air that people are breathing. breathing. And this is generally expressed as either number of fibres per litre, or sometimes number of fibres per cubic metre, or number of fibres per millilitre. And what I'll be showing you is uniformly number of fibres per millilitre. Because that's a relatively small volume of air, you've got this string of zeros after the decimal point. Uh, but I'm sure you, you, can, you can handle those without too much problem. And, and this is probably the best summary of measurements that have been done in buildings known to contain asbestos-containing materials uh, at any time. This was published in 1991. It was a, as a result of funding from uh, the US Congress to this particular organisation, Asbestos, uh, the uh, Health Effects Institute Asbestos Research. 
And what they did was to compile from all of the published literature high quality assessments of levels of exposure in air in, in buildings that contained asbestos products. And you can see there that for schools, the mean level was 0.3051, the 90th centile, so that's the top 10%, was bounded at 0.0016 and the maximum was 0.0080. Now what does all that mean? It is estimated that in Australia, uh, in ambient air, that's just the air we're all breathing as we wander around the town, the city, the country, that the maximum level of asbestos you're likely to come up with is 0.302. So you can see that those initial, the means there, are at the, that sort of the top of that range. So quite close to what you could get in the most extreme circumstances outdoors in Australia, unless of course you were wandering around the old Whittendown mine site or something like that. Uh, and uh, whereas of course they could go up to levels that are, are, are 10 times that or more. Uh, and that's again in house. So these are significant levels. It's giving people exposure to greater levels than that they would get under normal circumstances. What evidence is there that mesothelioma results from household exposure of the passive kind, the kind that I referred to right at the end there? Essentially, none. Now that doesn't mean that there isn't, but what it probably does mean that in studies where someone might have picked it up incidentally, for example, where you take a a bunch of people with mesothelioma find out about their exposure and then ask about the exposure of a comparable group of pe from the people from the general community. If there was a major risk from that passive household exposure, you would expect it to pop up in some of those with people reporting that exposure more commonly in those that had mesothelioma than those that did not and currently that evidence isn't there. So on the face of that, we don't seem to be looking at a dire situation, but that's, that's essentially negative as evidence. It's a, ne a negative in terms of lack of evidence rather than something more convincing. So I'm not going to leave it there, but just uh, I won't take questions now, we'll take questions. Ah, no, very good question, thank you. I was going to clarify that later. I will do it right now. Because from that survey that I showed you, most of that is going to be from other forms of insulation, insulation of pipework and things like that. Or it's going to be from insulation that was sprayed onto walls and ceilings. And that, of course, is asbestos with a binding material that sticks it. I am not aware of, and I'll be interested in what, what someone can, can inform me, of any situation in which buildings, except in Canberra and southern New South Wales, have had loose fill asbestos sprayed into their ceiling spaces for insulation purposes. And one can readily see how that might be more hazardous than most of the other situations you're likely to confront in a building, okay? I think that's, that's a very important thing to say and so thank you for prompting me to say it now. Okay, so now let's move on to Mr Fluffy, okay? Now I'll go talk about Mr Fluffy, I'll go talk about Mr Fluffy houses. When I say Mr Fluffy houses, basically I mean houses, apartments, anything that had loose fill asbestos in the ceiling. And you know more about this than I do, I'm quite sure of that, but I've read a little bit about it and I've summarised some of it there. And, uh, and so it affected about 1,100 uh, houses in Canberra. And it seems to have been mostly amosite from South Africa. Um, there were just a few with chrysidolite. Where that came from, we don't know. I guess Whittenham was a possibility. You'd hardly think people would import chrysidolite into Australia when Whittenham was producing it and exporting it, but 
There have been funnier things done in commerce than that, I'm sure. Um, okay, I, th I think this is a very interesting little bit of history, and many of you may well have read it. Read it. But in 1968, uh, Gersh Major, a very distinguished uh, expert on asbestos from the Sydney School of Public Health and Tropical Medicine, I guess was asked to come and advise on this issue here at Canberra. And as you can see, he said, some thought should be given to whether D. Janssen and Company Proprietary Limited should be dissuaded or prevented from using asbestos as insulation material in houses. Not only are men unnecessarily exposed to a harmful substance in the course of their work, but there is some evidence that community exposure to asbestos dust is undesirable. Now that's a little bit of an understatement, but I just need to remind you that it was only in 1962 that people first realised the potency of asbestos for causing mesothelioma. Now, six years later, six years later, but this kind of takes a while to filter through. One study, somebody else does one, and after a couple more people start saying, gee, there's something going on here, this is really important. So it, it, it was fairly early days in, in the realisation of the cancer hazard of, of, of asbestos. And, uh, and so it, a seeming understatement, but I guess one in retrospect wishes that someone said, yes, perhaps we should do something about D. Janssen and company using this stuff. So continuing on with our little bit of history here, um, and again, I'm sure you know this very well, in the period 1988 to 1993, the Commonwealth initially in the ACT government when the ACT was formed following, surveyed all residential residences for asbestos insulation in the ceilings, uh, attempted the removal of all visible and accessible loose asbestos fluff from affected residences, and then sealed, tried to seal whatever they could that was left uh, using PVA. And um, as we know now, that wasn't as effective as was hoped, and as I previously confessed on radio, I was one of the people who advised that that might be a, an action that was taken to solve the problem of asbestos here in the Mr Fluffy houses. And you know, I'd say that that's something I, I regret now, although I don't think I, I expected that they would properly assess the effectiveness of what they were doing at the time, which apparently may not have been the case. In 2005, somewhat later now, moving on from 1993, the ACT government sent a letter to owners of affected residences advising on the care to be taken when doing extensions or renovations. It was now being realised that there was still a problem. In February 2014, the ACT government again wrote to owners warning of the likelihood of residual asbestos and recommending that they obtain an asbestos assessment report. And then in July 2014, the results of the early asbestos assessments prompted the establishment of the Asbestos Response Task Force. And then in 2014-15, we have the task force's report, its recommendation that all affected Canberra homes are demolished. Again, my advice was sought and I couldn't agree more heartily at the time. And then in July, 6, 2015, the first house was demolished. So we are, I think, with this one coming to the end of an era, but it doesn't bring the end of the disease necessarily. And so it remains an important question, what is the risk? So let's now look at exposure to asbestos in Mr. Fluffy houses. There are very few data available. Uh, maybe there's some more, but I haven't been able to find it. What I've been able to find, I'm going to tell you. <coughs> the first one, um, and you'll note it says um, in the end of that first sentence, probably in the ACT, and probably in the early 1980s. Uh, interestingly, when the authors of this particular paper reported it, they didn't say where it was. 
but they were both in Canberra, so it looked like it was probably done in Canberra. And they didn't say when they did it, but it was published in, the, uh, in, in, in 1985, so one presumes it was done a year or two or so before that. So it's, it's a little bit before um, the decision to do something about the houses. And these surveys were done in office and plant buildings. They're not very specific about what that means, but office and plant buildings. But interestingly, 59 samples of air were taken from one building in which the asbestos source, type and location were amosite, loose flock in the roof space above the ceiling. Now, if this wasn't a Mr Fluffy house, then it must have been a commercial building that Mr Fluffy insulated. I would think, given the time uh, at, that this uh, occurred. And, and this was done uh, using uh, pretty good methods. Uh, it was perhaps unusual for, for the early 1980s that, in this case, scanning electron microscopy was used to count the asbestos fibres. And so they were able to come up with measurements of fibre levels down to quite low levels. And this summarises the results of those 59 um, measurements in one building. So it's not 59 buildings, it's 59 measurements in one building. And you can see that the highest level up there was 0.022 fibres per millilitre. And then there were two at 0.03. Uh, which is just above that upper level of ambient uh, that we observe. And then there were four at 0.002 at that upper level, nine at 0.001, and 43 at less than 0.001, which was the limit of detection uh, for the method that was used. This is the second uh, bit of information, and this comes from a report done for the State of the Environment uh, report uh, 1997 and uh, as you can read it for yourself there but it says asbestos concentration by the membrane filter method which is not a very sensitive method and can only get down to 0.01 fibres per mil accurately uh, said that in, in 16 houses, ACT houses, they were all less than 0.01 so they didn't count 0.01 they had less fibres than that uh, but couldn't declare a lower level. So somewhere less than 0.01 is the best you can say from also a rather limited experience. And um, that's what I know about Mr Fluffy Houses uh, in Canberra. I just think it's worth adding to this the context of the ACT asbestos assessments and, and that is uh, that it has organised more than a thousand assessments in 1,022 Mr Fluffy properties that it currently has on its list. Uh, and the results of these are that roof space, wall cavities and underfloor are uniformly contain asbestos fibres. Asbestos fibres are found in living areas in approximately 60% of Mr Fluffy uh, properties, mostly amosite, rarely chrysidolite, consistent with what we know and approximately 10% of families have been unable to continue living in their homes because of asbestos found in, ma in main living areas, multiple rooms, corridors or heating or cooling systems. And the main purpose in quoting that is that it would be very reasonable to expect that the levels still in Mr Fluffy houses are the, are the same as, as they were before, but possibly or not all of them necessarily, obviously but the asbestos is there. It's found in dust um, and it's probable that it's being suspended in air. And I think that's more than adequate justification for the decision that was taken uh, to de demolish the houses. What about New South Wales, Mr Fluffy Houses? There are currently known to be 63. There may be more, but that's the, that's the current count. Neither removal of loose fill asbestos nor demolition of the affected residents has been New South Wales government policy. 42 residences underwent detailed investigation in 2014 and early 2015 
And they included, and this is probably the best set of measurements that have been done so far, seven, do seven days continuous 24-hour monitoring uh, to get the fibres into the filters to be counted to find out what the concentration is. So, so great sampling, uh, but a small downside that I'll mention in a minute. Uh, they also sampled interior dust uh, to see if asbestos fibres could be found in the dust and they also did a visual search for structural defects that might permit fibres to enter the living area. So trying to look to see what could be done to make these places safer or perhaps to say that some were unsafe. <clears throat> and these were the findings. An asbestos concentration of 0.01 fibres per millilitre and recommendation here was some intervention because this was a detectable level at 0.01, which was considered to be unsafe. Uh, there were others where asbestos was found in dust, nine houses, ten apartment units, and because it was in the dust, some attention to the structure was considered necessary to try and seal off the entry of the asbestos into the house. And in the third category, the concentrations were less than 0.01, um, no asbestos found, and so nothing necessarily needed to be done at this time. The important point out of that is, again, that this was not done using electron microscopic levels. And so, again, we have this lower detection limit that means that we can't see what the actual levels were uh, down to the levels of 0.01, as with a more sensitive measure. So, unfortunately, it doesn't give us the information we'd like to have. Now, to summarise all of this, Am I going for time? Oh, I'm just about on schedule. Uh, okay. Um, this is the information I've showed you about exposure levels. Firstly, there's that international experience that I talked about, which generally seems to have had perhaps lower levels than in Mr Fluffy houses. Um, and that's perhaps what we would expect because of the, if you, the, the, the better... Um, containment of the asbestos in other methods of insulation than the loose fill method. Um, and there you can see that most of, well all of the mean levels for Mr Fluffy houses are either less than 0.01, but we don't know how low, or less than 0.001. The maximum observed was 0.02 in that property here in Canberra and uh, then 0.01 in a Mr Fluffy house in New South Wales. So I think we can probably say that the levels in Mr Fluffy houses are less than 0.01. I'm, I guess, punting on the evidence both that came from those 59 measurements, where most of them were less than 0.001, and from the international experience, that a reasonable estimate to make of what the average is in Mr Fluffy houses over long periods of time at about 0.001. But what I'm going to show you doesn't just say, well, that's it, that's the assumption. I'm going to show you a full range of estimates of disease risk for different levels so that you can get a sense of how sensitive those estimates are to a different assumption about what the levels are. OK, so on to our estimates of risk of death from mesothelioma or lung cancer from living in a Mr house. This is where the rubber hits the road here. And these estimates were made by my colleague, who I mentioned earlier, from the Karolinska Institute. And just for those of the, you who are tech, technically minded, the asbestos potency factors for lung cancer and mesothelioma mortality were from the US EPA's Airborne, Airborne Asbestos Health Assessment Update of 1986, a very substantial body of work done by a very eminent researcher in asbestos-related disease, W.J. Nicholson. Lung cancer and all-cause mortality rates were from the 
USA EPA's technical support document uh, 2003 and the methods for actually doing the computation were described in Berman and Crump's uh, critical reviews in toxicology report of 2008. So anyone who's interested can have a look at those reports um, and see what you think. Whoops, wrong way. We also assumed that a person spent two-thirds of their time in the home. I mean, obviously don't spend 24 hours a day at home. Most of us don't. And so we assumed 16 out of 24 hours a day in the house. And we made estimates assuming lifetime exposure, no, lifetime exposure to asbestos concentrations in air of 0.3025 fibre per mil, so that's that upper limit of ambient asbestos levels, 0 0.0001, 0 0.0005, 0 0.01, 0 0.05, and, oops, 0 0.1, sorry, I shouldn't have had that extra zero in there. Um, so that last one should have been 0 0.1. As possible asbestos concentrations in indoor air in Mr Fluffy houses. I doubt that 0.1 is possible, um, but certainly 0 0.01 is. And a warning, these estimates are very uncertain, okay? The potency, and this is particularly because of the potency factors that are used in, in making the actual estimate, but it's also because of our uncertainty about what the real level of exposure is. You've seen what we've got. It's not a lot, okay? So they are based on epidemiological studies of men exposed to asbestos at work mostly before the 1970s. So these are studies that were done a long, long time ago. They had very inaccurate measurements of asbestos in the air that men breathed. And none of the sophistication of some of the measurements that I've told you about. Often incomplete and inaccurate work histories and the exposure assessment depend on where in the, in the factory they worked, how long they worked there. And if that information is missing from their work history, you can't come up with an accurate assessment of an individual's exposure, which is necessary to get accurate estimates of the potency factors with respect to different levels of exposure. And poor documentation of the types of asbestos to which men were exposed. So one cannot take, really take into account differences in the type of asbestos in any effective way because of lack of information. And in any case, uh, we find great uncertainty even around the individual measures of a potency for the each, each of the major forms of asbestos. So these all create considerable uncertainty. So we've done our best to give you an idea of what it might be. But just remember that it's only our best. So what we have estimated is a worst case situation. We've estimated the lifetime risk here of mesothelioma death per 100,000 people living their lifetimes in a home with each of those levels of exposure. So it's effectively, we're talking about the risk here per 100,000 of a person who was born in a Mr Fluffy house and who lived the rest of their life in a Mr Fluffy house. Okay. And what you can see is that down at 0 0.002, we're only talking about two or three, uh, at 0 0.001, we're talking about 12 to 15, depending on sex, at 0 0.005, 61 to 75, 0 0.01, 122 to 151, 0 0.05, 611 to 750, and 0 0.1, 1216, 1495. If my punt is correct, and it's 0 0.001, then while the levels are meaningful, and I'll come back to that in a minute, they are low. If it's 0 0.01, 
about 10 times higher. And my guess is it's somewhere in that 0 0.001 to 0 0.01. Uh, well, it was actually based on expectation of life, and in this case, 91 years. Okay, so pretty, pretty good life, that one. And uh, I've just added, for your information, what the lifetime risk of an average Australian dying from mesothelioma um, is. And you can see that that actually is pretty close to the 0.05 fibres per mil. Now that doesn't mean that we have air in Australia that's uniformly 0.05 fibres per mil. It of course is a mixture of people who have had very heavy exposures in industry and so on. And most of us, happily, who, who don't have much exposure at all. But it gives you a bit of a sense of where that lies in terms of the overall asbestos problem in Australia. If it were back to the 12 and 15 level, then it's a rather small addition. If it's at the 0.1 fibre per mil level, it's a, a, a more significant addition, certainly. <clears throat> and here's the same information for lung cancer. And you can see that's uh, certainly not as dire. Um, so rather than 12 to 15, we're looking at 3, at two, three and 2 at 0 0.01, and it gets down to 335 and 219. Now, I think there's some room to debate those figures. Um, there's been a recent publication that suggests that we have underestimated uh, the impact of lung cancer in respect of total asbestos-related cancer. Uh, no one as yet has integrated that information into this kind of estimation technology, so we haven't been able to do that. Uh, so it could be anywhere from the estimate we've given there to perhaps um, the same as mesothelioma or double. Uh, but again, this is the best we've got at the present time. But again, I'm afraid more uncertainty. Okay, now I want to give you a sense of how many people, how many people are going to get mesothelioma who lived in Mr. Fluffy House? And this assumes that there were 1,100 such houses. It assumes that an average of 2.6 residents per household. It assumes a 40-year period of occupancy of each Mr. Fluffy House from installation of the asbestos fluff um, from 1973 on average, which is about right, to the present. And it uh, assumes lifetime risks of mesothelioma at the different levels of asbestos exposure that I showed previously. But what we're doing here, of course, is not having people living lifetimes. We're just taking little bits of lifetimes and gluing them all together, in a sense, to come up with the number. And what we get um, is perhaps a little surprising to you. But you see, even at 0.01 fibres per mil, um, it doesn't look terribly likely as if we have yet had one mesothelioma due to living in a Mr. Fluffy house. Now, that doesn't mean one in anybody, any time, lived in a Mr. Fluffy house because the background level of mesothelioma that one that we looked at right there in, in 1943 to 1953 in, in, in Denmark is, is about one and a half times higher than the excess that we put on from living in a Mr. Fluffy house. So any mesothelioma on, if that estimate is correct, any mesothelioma that we see in someone who lived in a Mr. Fluffy house is more likely due to something else rather than the Mr. Fluffy exposure. But um, if we uh, go on a little further and say, well, what might we expect in another 40 years, which will probably exhaust any risk that there was from Mr. Fluffy houses, what are the totals? And there that you can see it's about three, if it's 0 0.01, and it's about you know, somewhere between a quarter and one or thereabouts if it's 0.001. Now, why does this seem different from the others? It's because ultimately we're not talking about a really large number of people. Previously, we were talking in hundreds of thousands. 
what we've got on average in Mr. Fluffy houses at any time is about, I think I worked out the sum it was 5,680 or something like that people, based on that 2.6 per household. So it doesn't mean that the risk is extraordinarily low, it just means that because of the relatively few people, ultimately there will be relatively few adverse effects. That, 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 that assumes all the assumptions, essentially, yeah. Um, and, you know, I hope, it, hope that's the way it is. History will tell us. Okay, let me come to some conclusions here. <clears throat> Assuming an average asbestos concentration in air in a Mr. Fluffy house of 0.001 fibres per mil, the estimated lifetime risk of death from mesothelioma or lung cancer due to a lifetime of living in a Mr. Fluffy house is 16 per 100,000. It is widely accepted that the general population should not be exposed to hazards that confer a lifetime risk of cancer of greater than one per 100,000. Thus, in these terms, living in a Mr. Fluffy house presents an unacceptable risk to life and health. A lifetime risk of 16 per 100,000 just to give you a sense of proportion, is in a ballpark of Australian population risks of death before 85 years of age, not, nine, not 91, but 85 is the one that's reported, not 91, uh, from anal cancer of 29 per 100,000, Hodgkin lymphoma, 39 per 100,000, lip cancer, 7 per 100,000, testicular cancer, 18 per 100,000. So these are hazards that, we, that people experience um, we know people that have had these diseases and those are the risks, the lifetime risks of getting, getting those particular cancers. These are comparatively low risk, but of course they're all things we'd like to avoid. Some Mr Fluffy houses may have higher asbestos concentrations in air, up to 0.01 or 0.02, and carry higher risks. And there you can see if it's 0.01, uh, the risk there is 164 per 100,000 of mesothelioma or lung cancer. And if it's 0.02, 328. And it may be that those are the kind of risks that people who disturb the Mr. Fluffy asbestos from time to time and so on uh, be, be potentially at risk of, depending on exactly how many times they did it and how much exposure they accumulated. As for the Public Health Act impacts, living in Mr Fluffy houses will probably have only a small impact on public health generally. One person, and perhaps up to three, will die from a mesothelioma due to living in a Mr Fluffy house. Thank you. Uh, thanks very much, Professor Armstrong. Um, we've got time for questions. Um, we are going to have to be fairly punctual because Professor Armstrong has to catch a plane. And our approach um, to this is if people have questions that are unanswered, if people could email our um, study email address, which is act.asbestos.health.study at anu.edu.au, and we'll... we'll definitely try and respond to all queries following this. I think there's a question up the back right. Well, it's, it's really a comment. And Professor Armstrong, your talk was fascinating, and yet to me very disturbing. Your last slide said that your best estimate is that one, maybe three people will die from mesothelioma if for, if for, from Mr Fluffy houses. And on the basis of that risk, 1,000 households are being thrown out of their house compulsorily. And I'm just gobsmacked at the just the contempt and the inhumanity, really, um, of that sort of decision. It's not from my indifference to those one or three people, but I'd like to know how many of those thousands of people who are living in Mr Fluffy houses will die from lung cancer through smoking in their Mr Fluffy house, will die in car accidents, and a thousand one other sad things. So I think it's just a, uh, your talk is fascinating and just exposes the absurdity of the whole... Uh, let, let me say that... <clears throat> That, that, that's a view I readily understand. Um, my view, when asked, um, I guess it must be a year or so ago, 
what should be done was to demolish. And the reason I formed that view was at, at least um, fairly strongly determined by what was happening in Mr Fluffy houses uh, when the problem first arose. There were people getting up in their ceilings at night and pulling the stuff out and carting it to the tip and dumping it in the tip. People were anxious and frightened about the value of their properties. And you know, the, the, the whole public response, the anxiety and the distress to me suggested that this was the time to ultimately uh, deal with the problem completely. That was not a scientific opinion, that was a human opinion, okay, personal opinion, and I never couched it in any different terms than that. But that's, uh, that's why I, I, I formed that opinion and um, I recognise and acknowledge the fact that having the houses demolished and all of this kind of stuff is also causing a great deal of anxiety and distress. But it will come to an end, whereas the asbestos in those homes is going to stay there indefinitely. Other questions? Yes. Uh, <coughs> it seems what comes out of your discussion more than anything is how poor our, our figures are on the concentration of fibres that actually are in Mr Fluffy houses. Um, I've, as a person who lived in Mr Fluffy house for 40 years, and would like to spend the next 40 probably uh, in the Mr Fluffy house also, um, I have to know, is it safer to be outside my house or inside? We need to know what is the background of the fibre count in the air surrounding us and what is it in the Mr Fluffy house. We're talking about a program that's going to spend, we're told, a billion dollars. And yet, with all the information you'll be able to gather, you have no idea, really, what whether the concentration of fibres in the air in the Mr Fluffy house, given that the stuff was taken out of the ceiling in nine, between 88 and 92, whether that is any greater danger than being outside the house. Yeah. <clears throat> I, I think it's... A, and, and again, that was certainly an issue um, for consideration uh, when decisions were being made about this program. Uh, the problem ultimately is that no matter what you measure those levels at, the asbestos is still there. And for many people, um, all the reassurances in the world are pretty meaningless. Again, you know, now I can see that there's a lot of people who disagree with me and, and, I, and I understand that. Uh, and I'm telling you, this was, this was an opinion. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a not an ill-informed opinion. I have been the head of a health service in, in Australia and so I sort of know about these wider issues. Um, but I felt that going out and doing a big program of measurement was still not going to solve the problem. Um, but you're absolutely right. Had we that information, um, it would it'd be much easier to make decisions than we currently can. And, and certainly my first response uh, when something starts for the first time is go out and measure it. Find out how big the risk is. Find out what the exposures are. Do it straight away. Um, and, and, and we now have the technology to do that well. Unfortunately, uh, we didn't have um, the same availability of technology when Mr Fluffy first became a problem. Um, thank you for coming today and talking to us. My question is, um, given how little information we know and what you've said that be one to three people will be affected, why the rush of getting us out of our homes now then? If it takes 40 years, and it's taken 40 years already, and they've had, what, two cases? 
why do we need only seven months to be told that we need to leave our houses immediately to find somewhere else to live? Yeah, I, 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 that, that's not a question that I can answer. Um, so the beat up, it's a beat up to tell us to get out of our homes immediately. Well, I'm, I'm just saying it's not a question I can answer uh, and I'll stick to the questions I can answer. Sorry. Um, I think I've got one you can answer. The assumption of 2.6 people, was it, in the household? Um, I think I saw the census. Yeah, 2.5. But, mm -hmm. <coughs> but is that... Oh, 2.6 per household, yep. Yeah, what, was that simply that's the average number of people ACT-wide? That's ACT-wide because... So in, it's not tailored to it's the known homes. not tailored to Mr Fluffy Houses and, and I... So that know, could be reasonably oh, it, it, inaccurate. It could be yeah. out by... You know, it could be 3.6. Yeah, okay. It could be 1.6. So uh, that could change yeah, the model. They don't report that information down to the sort of the, well, in fact, yeah, certainly yeah. not down to the Mr Fluffy House level. So that could change the model, though the estimate. Uh, um, it would it would affect the uh, it wouldn't it wouldn't change the risk estimates. That is the the, the risks per hundred thousand. It mm. would change the expectation of numbers of cases. Yeah. If it's less, there'll be less cases. If it's more, there'll be more. Yeah. Absolutely. Thank you. We've got time for two more questions, so I think we'll just take here and down here. Thank you for your talk. Um, two questions that are very closely related. Does the age of exposure make a difference? And do you have any idea of how long after exposure most people would either get or not get mesothelioma? Okay, okay. Uh, yeah. Firstly, age of exposure is actually critically important. Um, but it's important because, sorry, um, lady at the front there keeps reminding me I've got to speak up, and I'm glad she does because I hate it when there are people somewhere in the audience who can't hear. Um, anyway, it, 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 it is critically important, but mainly because of two things. Firstly, you've got more time to develop a cancer and it's not just in the risk of cancer by age after exposure is not just increasing you know, on a straight line. It's actually going up exponentially with a, an exponent for those of you who, who know maths, which I'm sure most of you do, of around about four. So it's really you know, quite a, a, a very substantial increase with time from first exposure. Uh, it's probable that there is no greater sensitivity of younger people to the effects. It's probably just simply that, that, that it's the accumulation of time. Now, how long? The first mesothelioma in a Whitnam worker occurred somewhere between 10 and 15 years after first exposure. So we don't tend to see many asbestos-related cancers before about 15 years. Currently, the experience of Whitnam minors is still being observed and they are still developing cancers, many of them after 50 years since first exposure. It does depend on the kind of asbestos and Chrysidolite, blue asbestos, is probably the one that is least resistant, is most resistant to removal from the lung. And so it's sitting there still kind of do, doing its cancer-causing job. It's not like you inhaled chemical, that you inhale it and when you stop inhaling it, you're no longer exposed. Chrysotile, the one that is thought to be less likely to cause mesothelioma, is removed from the lungs much, much more quickly than the, the chrysidolite. So I think that answers your two questions. So just a final question here. Thank you. Um, I'm a civil engineer by profession and I'm also an inventor. I'm sorry for not standing up. I'm tied up here to an oxygen bottle. I was very, very, uh, um, I'd concentrated efforts with asbestos branch back in 91 in trying to get 
a method to remove the asbestos properly, but I didn't have very much luck. Mm. I was vice president of the, as, as the Inventors Association in the ACT, and since then I've developed and patented a method to remove asbestos so that every phrase of it can be monitored. The air is completely cleaned when you come to a non-asbestos element within the air. And I've been trying for some months now to get politicians to listen to what I have to say. It's an unfortunate situation I'm in because I'm dying. Mm. And I believe this was due to asbestos. Mm. But my doctors had gave me not very long to go. Mm. And I would like to be able to demonstrate my method to somebody before I go. Mm. Because in my opinion, the task force recently um, published in the newspaper a comment where they said, the loose asbestos in the air during demolition will be sprayed by water to keep it down. Now you can imagine a situation five years from now when a small piece of asbestos fiber gets into some child's lungs. We're gonna have one hell of a bloody time in Canberra trying to control it when it's being allowed to float around in the air. My method completely seals the house and as the process proceeds, one can see every fiber is monitored and being removed from the air and going into a vacuum chamber. And I'll stake my reputation on it. I'll stand anywhere and you won't find a, a better method because it's pure physics, mm. nothing more. Thank you very much for listening to me. Yeah, thank, thank you for that. And <laughs> I, I, it's not something I can help with, but certainly relevant people are here and they've heard what you've said. And, uh, and I hope they'll, they'll do something about it. Thank you. Well, look, thank you very much, Professor Armstrong. I hope everyone would join with me and thank Professor Armstrong for his, his interesting and enlightening talk. We hope you enjoyed this talk. Did it inspire or even provoke you? Let us know via Twitter at ANU underscore events. If you're interested in learning more about the research and ideas that come out of ANU, then why not consider a free subscription to ANU Reporter magazine? ANU Reporter tells the stories of the greatest minds in Australia, brightest students and finest alumni. Visit news.anu.edu.au forward slash publications and click on the ANU Reporter magazine link to find out more.